Great, it's a real privilege to be here. So uh, thank you very much for that. I love seeing the energy leave the room with the kids and the youth. Uh, we planted a church before this one in Hillingdon. It was called the Crown Church. And uh, maybe similar, I don't quite know to you, we used to say when the kids went out, actually we should keep the kids in and take the adults out because often more go. Uh, every church is different, isn't it? This church, when we planted it, we had one child under the age of 11. And so we used to send them out with two adults and it sort of felt like they'd misbehaved, go and have fun. But it's great seeing all your kids, your youth. Uh, the only thing I'm disappointed about is why I'm here this weekend and not next weekend. I mean, bouncy castles and a hog roast. Or come and sit here. It's great to be here with you. I'm delighted to hear that you've run out of thank you cards. I mean, what a great thing to say to church, isn't it? I don't know about you. The, the story that has challenged me most in my whole Christian life is the ten lepers. They came to Jesus, if you don't know it, you know, and from a distance, you know, they're fine. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. They run up and one comes back. And he says, Jesus, thank you. And Jesus just says, hey, where's the other nine? And I guess I've always felt that as such a challenge. We want to be a grateful people, don't we? And just to hear you've run out of thank you cards and more printed. I think, oh, this is that kind of church. So it is brilliant to hear that kind of stuff. Just an encouragement, really. I, I know that so many things are going on. Today, I had lunch with someone from Scotland. I mean, that's quite impressive, isn't it, with things that are happening this year. But also, I had lunch with someone from Colombia and somebody from Ethiopia. I had lunch today with somebody from Kenya. I had lunch today with somebody from South Africa. I had lunch today with somebody from America. I'm trying to think who else was around the table. We do a welcome lunch in our church, and they were the different nations that have turned up in the last month. And so we decided to go out for lunch together. And I suppose what it always makes me think is, this is what unites us. It is Jesus Christ, isn't it? And you think, God, who's this boy come out of London? What's he got to say? We're united because of Christ. This is why we come together. Hey, if you're just looking in and you say, I wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, we very much see church as family. Hey, we are united and together because of Jesus Christ. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to be um, speaking from Titus. I was given a, um, a topic by Owen, which I'm delighted to preach on. That's absolutely fine. Just the whole thing about elders. And I'm going to do that from Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 to 9. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 to 9. I quite like this, these kind of books. I don't, I don't know if you've worked out, but the Bible, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and several of them are letters, and some of them are letters written to churches, and some are written to individuals, and you can guess it by the title. So if it's the book to the Romans, you think it's written to a church, but if it's a book called Titus, it was written to an individual. But it's been recorded so that we can all learn stuff from this. So Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, I'm going to read to verse 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not 
quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I always find the Bible challenging. Let's pray and ask God's help. Eh? Father, we, uh, we are bombarded with information. God, we so often talk about the information highway. We're just overwhelmed. God, I don't want to treat your word just like anything else. God, I pray now as we come and just pause and look at it that your word will have authority. We ask, oh God, you'd bring understanding to our heads. We pray you'd bring acceptance in our hearts and we pray for willing hands that obey what you say. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, quick bigger background on the church. How did it begin? We know that Paul and Titus were involved in a ministry on the island of Crete. We're not exactly sure how and when the church started there. We do know that in Pentecost, so after Jesus had been raised, after he'd gone up to heaven, after he'd said to the disciples, wait here, we know that the Holy Spirit came, and he'd been doing a series on, on the Spirit, you know all of this better than I do. And at Pentecost, it tells us in Acts 2, verses 8 and 11, that people heard them in their own language, people from Crete. Oh, so we think right from the beginning of Acts, there was this awareness on Crete of people having heard the gospel, because Peter stands up, doesn't he, on the back of that. We read that whole sermon in Acts 2. You killed the Son of God. Help, <laughs> what should we do? Repent and be baptized, is what he says to them. And so we know that Cretans were there and would have heard it. The assumption in this is that... Um, They've heard the good news of Jesus and a church has been planted. Paul's passion, writing this letter to Titus, is come on, we are committed to church planting. This is why, I'll be honest, this is why I love being connected to Advance. We are not perfect. They always say, don't they, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll spoil it. Yeah, we don't like to hear that one, do we? But I think that's true even of a movement. It's not perfect, but what I love is the fact we're committed to planting together. I love the fact that when you get together, there's people planting Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and Wokingham, and that's just in this place. You think this is something of the beauty, isn't it? One of the guys from South Africa that I was chatting to over lunch today, obviously just reflecting on, shall I say, the spiritual temperature he felt didn't feel quite as hot in Ealing as it is in Cape Town. And he said, oh, what, what, what are you doing about that? I said, but well, this is our job. We are called to make a difference. We're here to pray, God, do something in us and through us and amongst us. And that's why you guys are here, isn't it? We're committed to planting churches. We can also assume that the church is there to grow, to develop. And the danger often with that is what's happened organically and relationally needs structures and systems. We had someone today, God, it sounds very international, actually. Um, somebody today, a couple in our church, they've been with us. We started almost 10 years ago, but they now live in Dubai because he's working in Saudi Arabia. And uh, they live in Dubai, and he commutes there each day, but they come back every so often. 
And they're sort of sat with it. I remember when they first joined us. They came from a large church in London, a New Frontiers church, which had at least 1,500 people in the church. And I remember the first time I sat down with them, we didn't even have Sunday meetings at the time. We just started a small group in my home. And they were sort of saying, um, what do you do for the poor? They had five houses for the poor at this church. And I said, um, nothing yet. <laughs> what, what are you doing for students? I said, um, Nothing yet. <laughs> I said, look, I can, I can offer you nothing compared to that church apart from one thing. And they leant in and I said, what is it? I said, as the leader, I can have you on speed dial. I bet there's a leader in your other church doesn't do that. And they, Oh, no, he doesn't. I said, because we're small and we can be organic. We can be family. We can be really connected. Do you know, they often say people channel, feel challenged when a church breaks 50 because you can't all get into one person's home. And suddenly it gets a little bit more structured, doesn't it? And you think, oh, we want to do something social. And we used to just all be out of pipe. Mind you, I mean, you guys have got so much land here, you could probably get 500. But, you know, we would say, where we are, oh, you used to be able to gather people in a home, 20 of you, but now there's too many. Or not everybody hears about it. Or not everybody hears about it on time. You've got to book a ticket to go to the bouncy castle. I guess there's something here. He's even saying, well, actually, this thing that started... Small, you've got to be a bit more structured. I guess the other thing that we pick up straight away is that he says, I want you to appoint elders because team is important. Again, it was fascinating. Uh, I don't know, some of you could be from different cultures, even with church. Again, one of the cultures was quizzing me over lunch. Are you a pastor or are you an elder? I said, well, I respond to whatever. Ah, because where I come from, you have the pastors and you have the elders and they don't, they don't meet, they don't mix. And it's it very easy to become, well, whatever the pastor... He says, are you the one in charge of everything? I said, oh, no, but I'd like you to speak to everyone else in the church if that's your philosophy. Of course I wouldn't. We believe in team. I said, that's plurality. And that's what you see here. What you see is there's got to be a sense of team together. We want to avoid one-man ministry. They reckon the average church size in the UK is 65 to 75. They reckon you people break the 50, but they don't break the 100. And you can employ one full-time person on 65 to 75 attending church. You could do that and all the costs and set up. And so, so many churches, half the, church, you know, the average church in the UK is stuck at that size. And sometimes I think that means we've, we fight against team ministry. And actually, when you come to elders, we're believing in team. Now, look, you can only employ one person at that size, but we've got to believe in team because that is biblical. I don't know if you'd listen to the news today. <sighs> Javid, isn't it, who's just put his name in for the Tory leadership. You know why he, um, he wrote his letter of resignation last week? Because he attended a prayer meeting. And the prayer meeting, there was a guy spoke who, Les Isaacs, is it? Who's the guy who started Street Pastors. And he preached on integrity. And he suddenly thought, I'm not sure with integrity I can continue to support Boris. Now, I've got to be careful on politics. I step well back from that. But I just found it fascinating because today what we're looking at is not what I called a church growth structure, a church growth process. Paul focuses upon character. 
And actually, if we want to see elders, it's not actually, can, uh, these people got great charts and great five-year plans. And if these people got it all, actually, what they're saying here is, how do we focus on character? Augustine, he was the Bishop of Hippo, that's Algeria. Some have nicknamed him the father of theology. He said, he who loves to govern rather than do good is no bishop. Now, I know he's using a different word, bishop, and many would say they've swapped that around for elder. But what he's really saying is, hey, if you're just up there to, to govern and to make rules, that's not it. Actually, it's character. And how about, how do we connect with people? Paul's emphasis here in Titus, when he's writing to him about choosing leaders, is choose those who have proved themselves as those who are disciples and make disciples. What do you look for in a leader? We have this rule, actually, when I preach at home. Fortunately, they're, they're not here today, none of my family, and I doubt if any of them have listened, so I can break the rules. If I mention one of my three kids in a sermon, I have to buy them a kebab. That's just the rule. We've had a lodger move in with us last week, uh, so I, I presume she's under the same rules as she's under our roof. And uh, We were chatting, obviously, about politics again. It slips up, doesn't it? You know? And I was quite surprised, because she said to me, oh, I quite like Boris. I said, oh, what do you like about him? His hair. She said, oh, there's something about him. Whenever you look at him, I just feel endeared towards the guy because of his hair. And I thought, hey, it's interesting, isn't it? What do we choose a leader about? Is it looks? Is it humour? Is it skills? Is it experience? Because in this passage, Paul is saying, if you're a leader, this is the kind of person you should be. If you're not yet a leader, this is the kind of person you should become. And if you're not yet a leader, this is the kind of person that you should pray for. And then he gives Titus a list of 15 things to look for in leaders and not one of them is potential or gifting. I was telling my wife that I was going to speak on this. She said, what's the title of it? And I said, easy, elders are blameless. And she said, well, that's disqualified you. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not taking you this week. <laughs> there you go, that's another kebab I've just saved. <laughs> but that is clearly what it says here. An elder, verse 6, must be blameless. Oh, yeah, anyone who's thinking about it, they're thinking, I'm backing out, you know what I'm saying? Now, I know what you're going to say to me, because if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible, none of us are going to claim sinless perfection. There's only one who's perfect, and that is Jesus. And so when I suddenly say, oh, an elder's blameless, oh, yeah, well, he's the ultimate elder, and he is blameless, how does that work for us? Paul instructs Titus in this letter, he expects to be read by the church as well as by him. The ESV translation, you may have got a different translation on your phone, says an elder must be above reproach. The Good News translation, I always like looking that one up, remember the pictures when I was a kid, said an elder must be without fault. The Message translation, if you call it a translation, would say the elder must be well thought of. Others have said an elder cannot be accused. An elder must have an untarnished reputation. What we really know from this is that therefore an elder should have stood out and been different. You might say, how can I argue that just from this? Because Paul writes to the church in Titus, in 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Titus, about the church in Crete. Sorry, I preached this morning. 
I will get my teeth back in. He's writing to the to Titus and says, hey, you know what happened there? One of Crete's own prophets had said, Titus 1 verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. I love that verse. It's in the Bible. I mean, what a way to win a church over to you. <laughs> yeah, it's like me turning up. Hey, do you know what I think of you guys in Wokingham? <laughs> no, I'm not even going to go there. You won't even stay to the end of the sermon. But that's literally what Paul is writing. He said, hey, this bunch of people, that is what they're like. You see, the people became who they admired. The Cretans' most celebrated myth was about their first king, King Minos. He was such a liar that he even lied to the gods. This was the myth around Crete. When he did not sacrifice a bull to the gods, as he had promised, the gods made his wife to lust after an animal. She then gave birth to the Minotaur. Yeah, it's not in the Bible. I'm just telling you a bit of myth and background to Crete. Half human and half bull. The king had a labyrinth made so that the world would never see the bull. But when the designer had finished, the king had him thrown into it instead so that he didn't have to pay him. The Cretans admired their king. They based their life around, oh, could we be that kind of person? So when Paul is writing, he says, hey, in the corrupt society that celebrates that as their hero, we're looking for you to be blameless. We're not looking for you to take your standard from those around. We're not looking to say, oh, I'm just slightly better than others. And I'm going to suggest, because I'm a preacher here, that he applies this blamelessness in three different scenarios. The first one is elders are to be blameless at home. The husband of but one wife, it says, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Christianity begins at home. What are you like at home with the doors closed? I told you that, um, uh, no, I didn't tell you this. Two weeks ago, we baptized uh, six folk at our church. And the last one was this girl who was actually in a situation she needed somewhere else to live and she's got no family. And she thought, well, I need someone to live, but I just don't know where I can live. And I said, well, the church is your family. You must come and live with us. So this girl has moved in, 30-year-old single girl with my wife and I. My daughter gets married this month. We thought we were going to be empty nesters. And now suddenly we have somebody joining us, which is great. My wife just said, do you think she'll stay in the church when she sees what we're really like? I said, oh, I hope so. You see, the reality is, isn't it, that our Englishman's home is his castle, is what we so often say. You know, oh, you can let your hair down, you can be your real self at home. So when he writes to Titus, he says, I'm looking for people that are elders in the home, that are blameless in the home. Oh, that's quite different, isn't it? People watch. Guy in our church, uh, yesterday, it was his birthday, and uh, I, when we were your size, we used to announce birthdays. We don't anymore. But we all sang happy birthday to him today. Like, his rules are there to be broken. He was 90 yesterday. And last week we did a baby dedication. We had a baby there that was there six weeks old and we're all celebrating that. And this week we said, let's sing happy birthday to him. He was 90. So I had a little party for him in my house yesterday. We'd had like a cream tea and all like this. And 
He'd invited around some neighbours and all that kind of stuff. And Anyway, this one woman from Poland kept saying to my wife, is your husband always like that? I mean, he's washing up. <laughs> now, look, at the end of the day, I can't cook, so I've had to learn to clean. I accept that. But I found it fascinating. She's just watching the, the way you operate at home. Because actually, in home, that's what you're really like. Tragically, I drive her home afterwards, and I know that she's had two husbands, and she, they never helped. People watch what you're like at home. Blameless in the home. Faithful to his wife. A one-woman man. One who loves his wife and is not flirting with other women. A man who is faithful to his wedding vows, he's likely to be able to care for the bride of Christ. That's the picture. That's what he's looking for. Whose children believe. Children copy their parents. We had this dedication, as I said last week, we did two baby dedications. The honest truth is, isn't it, overnight success takes 20 years. You don't actually know how your kids are going to turn out till they're 20. You invest in them for years. You pray over them. The danger is we, we're not here to make our kids moral. We want our kids to love Jesus. We're not here to make them behave to make us look good. What it's really trying to say is, I want your kids to grow up to think, I love God. The lady from South Africa, I told you I was sitting and chatting over lunch. I didn't know I was going to get so many illustrations out of the lunch. She said to me, oh, my dad was a pastor. I said, oh, pastor's kids, you're one of those, are you? I mean, you're stuck with it, have you? I said, I always said to my wife, I said, if my kids want to walk away from God, I want them to say, oh, I just got fed up of the miracles. I, another blind person had seen. That's it, I'm out of here. Yeah, if one more dead person gets raised, I want nothing to do with this Christianity. I thought, well, I want them to be so bowled over by, oh, this is what it is. Not, oh, they've been moral and they had to believe because we had somebody else around the house. We're looking for parents, if you're going to be an elder, that's blameless in the home. If a man is too lazy to discipline his own children, he's unlikely to care for and protect the flock of God from wolves that want to attack the sheep. That's surely the picture that we get here. The home matters. If you can't lead at home, you can't lead in, the in God's house. This is the picture. If you're domineering in the home, you'll be domineering in the church. If you shirk responsibility at home, you would do so at church. Tim Chester, he's an English guy. He, to me, I'd better not worship him right here and right now. He's an incredible guy. He's done loads of study. I once had a meal with him and said, how many books have you written? I stand in awe of you. And he said, oh, I don't know. So I looked up on Google whilst I'm having dinner with him, and it said something like 45. I said, you've written 45? He said, oh, they don't all count. Some of them are commentaries. I said, why don't they count? He says this. Paul says to Titus, the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in his home life. What goes on in his home life. So Paul says, you've got to be blameless in home. He then goes on, and I would say, he said, you must be blameless in character. It says here, since an overseer, that's a, another word used really, we would say elder, is entrusted with God's work, 
He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The blameless word comes in again. Five negatives and six positives. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? Character. So often we look for skill, if we're really honest. What are they really like? I left my wife watching the Wimbledon final. If you, uh, you know, are recording it and don't want to know till you get home, I haven't got a clue what the score is anyway. But I know she kept, she's a Djokovic fan. Okay, I'll just close that right now. She goes, oh, I do hope he wins. You know, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm just not sure I like the other guy. I said, well, he must be quite good. He's in the final. She said, oh, yeah, but he keeps disagreeing, and he's had lots of fines. I thought it's fascinating, isn't it? Character. She comments on his character. And I guess that is what Paul is saying here. What is the character like? Teach the truth. That's what character's about. Novelty sells. Orthodoxy doesn't because it's all been heard before. But character says, I'll settle for orthodoxy. I haven't got to create something new. I haven't got to try and make something up. Let's be honest, this is true for all of us. The hardest person to lead is yourself. And that is really what Paul is saying to Titus. Look for people that are good at leading themselves. They repent of their anger. They don't bully a colleague at work. They've already decided how many drinks are too many before they begin. The character seen in hospitality. How are you thought of in the workplace? I heard of one church where the, the church pastor, if someone was going to be nominated to be an elder, would phone up their boss at work and say, hey, this person, we're thinking of making them an elder. What do you think of them? Man, I know, I thought, you know. But it's something about actually what's their character like? There should be no secular, sacred divide. Are we loving those outside the church? Very different. And verse 9, my final one, blameless in doctrine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Faithful with the gospel. John Calvin, he was the French theologian in the 1500s. He says, you know, an elder ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off, driving away wolves and thieves. It's almost like, how do you have this voice that says, come on, I care. Another voice says, you just get away, back away from my kids. I don't know, have, have any of you seen the film King Richard? Is it King Richard? Serena and Venus's parents, uh, father, who'd been a coach. Yeah, there's a tennis theme coming out. It's been Wimbledon, bear with me. My wife got me to watch it just this week. He wanted to be there to defend his girls. And it's almost in some respect, that's what a father does. The story there is he said he didn't have a father to defend him. But actually he wanted to defend them. Elders should be those that don't change the message to increase the numbers of people that attend. 
but are those that spot false ideas and confront them. I think there's a danger here. Andrew Wilson, the advanced uh, theology uh, guy who also spoke at the Advanced Global Leadership Summit, said our approach to, to leadership can be a bit like a drunk man on a horse. I know the idea is not original to him. It's almost you get on and you fall off one side and you get back on and you fall off the other. Our danger with leadership is now we can almost think in the past, oh, it was just a bit weak in that. And so we went for strong leadership. And now there's been leadership falling morally around the world in the church. We think, oh, we don't want strong leadership. Let's just all do what we want. How do we come back to actually believing for elders that are going to stand for truth? It's so hard, isn't it? Because we all respond to what we have experienced. Do they overpastor? have too much control, suppress ideas, bully people? Or do they underpastor? Too little leadership, avoid confrontation, fail to challenge ungodly living. I think it was Spurgeon that used to say, a good elder should be able to throw you down the stairs in such a way you get up and thank him for it afterwards. Oh yeah, somebody's listening. What? <laughs> It was almost like he wanted to confront you and say, Don't, how dare you live like that? And you go, oh, thank you ever so much. I think you've saved my life. That's what a good elder should be. That's what he was saying. How do you guard? We're all called to pastor one another. We have threes. We talk about in our church, we encourage three guys or three girls to meet together for an hour in the week. The danger with anything like this is vulnerability becomes the gold. Why don't you just tell them what's been going on in your last week? Oh, God, can't believe I did this at work. Can't believe I did that. Can't believe I looked at this. And we said vulnerability is not the goal. Holiness is. We must take where we are and pursue change because the gospel changes us. We're not just a chatting club. We're a gospel club. And that is what we believe for elders. They are those that bring the gospel to challenge us. If we overpastor, we need to step back and accept that God is great and he is in control. God is gracious and our identity is in Christ. If we underpastor, we've got to accept that God is glorious and he's the one we fear, not other people. Leadership is important. If the driver of the car is lost, the whole car is lost. My wife uh, preached at our church recently and she said, oh, I was so proud of Pete because we were, we were on holiday, we were in another country, we'd gone to Israel, we'd done a pilgrimage, this was at Easter and uh, we, we had an hour's spare and I thought, I can't be sat here in Bethlehem and do nothing. I said, let's go out and explore. So we went out and explored and I knew where I was going but I just knew, we didn't quite know where I was. And she said, oh, I was so proud of him because he asked the policeman, I don't know where I'm going. And I felt like I needed to stand up and say, hang on, you almost implied I was lost. And I wasn't lost because we hate to admit that, don't we? But we know fundamentally if the person who, who's lost is out front, we're all lost. If the driver's lost, everyone in the car is lost. Leadership is important. Let's not be afraid of leadership. And yet leadership's also important because people are quick to judge the church. We're therefore looking for God-fearing people, loving, steadfast men. Our danger is that we can refuse authority. We want to flatten all leadership. 
No one tells me what to do. We were chatting today. There's a, this guy and girl who just started dating. They were at this lunch as well, and he's taking her out for a surprise date in uh, London tomorrow. And I was trying to suggest every, every place that I could think of in London to see if his eyes flickered because it was a surprise and I was trying to spoil it, I suppose, really, which is not a great thing to be doing, is it? I said, oh, what about the Houses of Parliament? He said, oh, she said, I don't think I'd like to go. I said, oh, I've been there once. It's fascinating. You know, they show you all about this and this is, this is the Queen's own toilet in the Houses of Parliament. Nobody else has used it. But, you know, and she goes, oh, it sounds quite interesting like this. I said, but you're not allowed to sit on the seat. Oh, if somebody told me that, I'd want to sit on the seat because we're like that, aren't we? As soon as somebody says, don't do something, we want to do it. So how do we respond to leaders going forward? The author of Hebrews, not totally sure who that is, are we? Hebrews 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So I think that's the challenge. I think in this whole process, we're not trying to say, oh, I've got it. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to keep them to account. You know what I'm saying? Whoever these elders are, I'm, I'm just going to let them know. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, come on, pray for them and bless them. So in concluding, I'm saying that elders should be blameless, blameless in the home, blameless in character, and blameless in doctrine. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sat here thinking, what? I'm glad I'm not being nominated for an elder in this church. The U.S. professor, Walter Liefeld, he's a U.S. professor of New Testament theology, says this, As to the qualifications for overseers, we can probably agree that what is listed in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, they're the two passages that both talk about this, describe a way of moral character that is desirable among all believers and should be required in any age. So now I've told you the three points that you could stone your elders for. What he's really saying is, hey, this should be true of all of us. So actually, let's not sit back and just say, oh, look, I think, oh, I don't think they're blameless. Actually, we're to be those that are blameless in the home. We're to be those that are blameless in character. We're all to be those that are blameless in this. And it's not, oh, well, you know, you've got to get it all right now and I'm watching. Oh, God, the gospel should change me. Phil Moore, a London-based author, says this, these 15 attributes are a description of what God promises to do in the life of any believer who will let him. They are an invitation to allow him to change your heart more and more through the gospel. Now, I am not trying to water this down. <laughs> I'm not going to say, oh, no, let's just pick anyone. Because I think this is important. This is the Bible. But also, I don't want us to have this great valley that says, oh, over there. I, I grew up in a Baptist church. I've got much to thank God for my Baptist roots. Uh, you know, my mum quizzed me on the Bible before I was old enough to go to church in the evening. Yeah, we were taught a love for the scripture. My dad went out evangelizing every week. And because nobody else from the Baptist church would go with him, he used to take his mother-in-law. I mean, I thought, talk about commitment to the gospel. Phenomenal. 
but we used to have big thrones at the front of our church. And the pastors was bigger than anyone. But every other you know, person had, you know, it was a throne. And if you were an elder, you got to sort of sit on the throne at the front. And I don't think that is what we're looking for here. We're looking for fathers that love. We're looking for fathers that care. I, um, I hope she won't mind, the girl who's living with us. She told her testimony when she got baptized two weeks ago. She'd gone through the foster care system. So she's got no one. She said, I need someone to live and I've got no one. I'd preached the following week on our dedication Sunday. Uh, it was um, always pray and do not give up. We're looking at parables of Jesus. And we just went through some of the stats of the hurt that's caused to kids where fathers have given up. The percentage that are in foster care, the percentage that will be in prison because they have... Look, I'm not trying to throw stones, but what I'm saying is a society without fathers is hurt and pain. And I actually believe that's true of the church. And this is not meant to be some constraining thing. This is meant to be, we believe fathers are biblical. They're biblical in homes and they're biblical in churches. So I guess just as I land this, uh, it's my... I presume I'm going to be saying all this. Owen will uh, scrub me in a moment if I've overstepped the mark. Forgiveness is easier to obtain than permission. I know that there's a team of guys that have been gathering and have been looking at stuff and working over the past year. Uh, our heart and our prayer is that we will present some guys to the church in September for you then to say, hey, whether or not we feel... There's anything going on. We've just done this ourselves. We have six elders in the church where I am, and we presented some last September. And we just said, hey, look, we've been working as a team, and we'd like to add these three guys to the team. If you've got any concerns whatsoever, please let us know. And we gave the church a month. We had a couple of concerns. I welcome that. We had lots more commendations, but there's a couple of concerns. I said, look, we just want to be open and honest with you. Let's talk this all through. And so the idea would be that actually come September, Owen and others will introduce some folks to the church and say, hey, would you prayerfully consider this? And then the church have got a month to come back and say, hey, yeah, in faith we believe this is the right step. And then we'd love to, uh, I believe, come like November time and say, hey, wouldn't it be great for this church to think, oh, this is the next stage. We believe it's like to install elders in the church. Now there's something that, that limits, but hopefully something that lifts Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven. Lord, we never want to take that for granted. Lord, as we've had thank you cards coming in, Lord, we, we thank you now. We thank you you love us. We thank you you pursue us. We thank you that when we were that prodigal that turned in our sin, you threw your arms around us. We thank you you're a God who forgives and a God who loves. We thank you for your word that speaks to us right now. Lord, I pray for us. Lord, I include myself. Lord, we want to be a church that says, come on, how, how do I see I become above reproach in my character, in my conduct, in my home? How do we as a church say, come on, let's take the next step. What's God calling us to do? Lord, we want to pray for Owen and for the team. We want to pray for this church. We want to pray, God, you're leading, you're guiding. And we ask it all for your glory. Amen.